we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to Wide Atlantic Weird, the podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in Wild West Cork, we deal with stories of the strange, ghosts, monsters, UFOs, weird fiction, and the history of strangeness in movies, books, and films, uh, with a, what hopefully what we think is a cr- critical but not a cynical mindset. So, my name is Kean, and uh, at the cabin at the moment, you join us uh, somewhere in the midst of autumn, we're past Halloween, and... This is the very first episode of Season 2. Now, I used to not bother with seasons whatsoever. In fact, I think you'll find our first 80-something episodes all went under the moniker of Season 1 because I wasn't really paying attention to seasons whatsoever. Uh, The only reason I'm putting this line in the sand is because I'm going to change a few little things about the show. Primarily, you'll notice I'm no longer doing scripted intros before the theme music no particular reason for this except uh, writing them was kind of slowing me down and also my taste in podcasts has changed over the last couple of years i'm kind of more interested in shows that get straight to the point rather than the sort of um, scripted and sort of ritualistic things so yeah it's just me in the cabin uh, with a beer talking about uh, peter jackson's 2005 version of king kong now our beer for this episode Well, usually I like to go for a kind of a small micro brew when I can. On this occasion, I'm plumbing for a Guinness, not that they need my help at all, just that I happen to have one around the house. And it is, of course, the uh, East Indies brew, which is lovely and sort of semi-tropical in theme. And that's what I'm enjoying as we go for this episode. Now... Oh yes, uh, for contact as always over on Twitter we are at Strange Ireland. On Instagram we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. Uh, please click the link in the bio on the socials or uh, check in the show notes for our fairly new Patreon where you can see we have three tiers and there are different ways you can support us, help us out, chuck us a few dollars and see uh, what the different tiers are and which one might work for you. There are a few small little things we will do for everybody who helps out primarily a bonus episode so everybody who subscribes gets a bonus episode once a week and uh, for the higher tiers then for folks who've decided to give us a little bit more there's a few small things we do add on top of that so do please take a look massive thanks to the people who have signed up already we have one listener in london who wants to remain anonymous and one in canada who has asked to remain anonymous and one in essex uh, who is jen from essex so big thanks to jen and everybody else guys really helps us to keep the lights on as they say Uh, please do take a look and see if any of those uh, tears would suit you as well if indeed you are critical and not cynical about the history of weird thinking and fringe beliefs now we've had some fun chats on twitter this week as well that i'd like to mention so one listener by the name of bassa and dare got in touch and uh, actually said a bunch of interesting things but just for the sake of brevity i'm going to mention one of them here so they mentioned about our episode about serial killers and said um, i'm still ruminating on the observation that it's quote simple horror where only one thing in society is wrong like for example just one person going crazy everything else being fine 
And uh, that kind of puts a nice, I, I like how they've put that there because that's something that was kind of on the tip of my tongue on that episode. And uh, I think they've um, really, really nailed it here. So that's that was really nice to hear. And what else? We also had a few folks getting in touch. We had Simon on Twitter, who was really interested in our recent Kiss episode. So that's myself and my brother Donald. And wildly off base, if you're a little thrown by that, it's just an example to show you that our bonus episodes for the Patreon um, will be covering a wilder and often a, a wider and often a sillier range of topics. But um, he said uh, uh, about that episode, hugely recommended if you're at all interested in the beautifully idiotic world of Kiss. And I can't think of a better way to put that one myself. Also, uh, Hedia, if I'm saying that right, uh, wrote and said, I meant to post this earlier, but I was in a graveyard. And then some Tories did some evil stuff and I got distracted. But Strange Ireland is a fantastic podcast and I highly recommend it. So that's really nice. We are Strange Ireland, of course, on Twitter. And uh, of course, uh, somebody needs to be looking out for those Tories. Indeed, even if you are in a graveyard. Apart from that, I popped up on a few podcasts this week, probably because it's Halloween. So big thanks to the folks over at Knock Once for Yes, which is a podcast that, amongst other things, collects uh, true-to-life ghost stories. So I shared my story uh, uh, concerning the Black Shook uh, in Canada, which I've probably told on this show maybe way back at the beginning. Uh, and also, I showed up on the UK Wildlife Podcast, of course. Uh, Neil on that show is no stranger to this podcast, and they wanted to do something a little bit different. So for their Halloween episode, they were talking about UK cryptids, and I showed up again talking about the Black Shook of East Anglia, where I did live for a while. So I had a few stories about that, and we had a really fun time, and I do recommend you check that one out. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. So that's enough of that. Let's talk about... Kong. So I'm a huge King Kong fan. Uh, I like the original one very much and my history with the Peter Jackson 2005 remake is uh, is up and down shall we say. Um, I've always been a massive massive fan of stop motion animation. I, I actually made a lot of stop motion animation as a teenager. I made kind of short films using uh, the kind of digital cameras that were uh, common in those days and making little armatures. I had books about the work of Ray Harryhausen and Willis O'Brien and Marcel Delgado, who were, of course, the originators and the heroes of stop-motion animation. And in all of the books I had, they always referenced King Kong as being kind of like the standard uh, classic one. That was the movie that kind of gave Ray Harryhausen his, uh, his inspiration when he first saw it as a kid. And the animator for that film... Willis O'Brien is is a big hero in the world of movie special effects and all kinds of animation as well. So I spent years and years as a teenager, you know, locked away in the dark trying to get all the lighting right, trying to make all these little figures and then painstakingly animating them. And uh, I still have a few films on VHS somewhere. And uh, I used to, I used to, you know, for a long time I thought I was going to be a filmmaker and I went around to small competitions and, and, and festivals and stuff in Ireland and um, had a few awards for it as well. So I fancied myself as a reasonably serious animator, or stop motion animator for a little while. So I have a big attachment to the, the stories about the creation of the original Kong. Now, I also uh, went through a period of watching a lot of gangster movies when I was in college and... I, I was really into the 1920s and 30s aesthetic and I distinctly remember having a really weird, vivid dream 
Um, I think I must have been sick or with a fever. And I had this dream that I was walking down a street um, and then suddenly I got to a bridge, like a like a New York style suspension bridge, and the camera pulled back in the dream, if you like, and I could see that it was a, a vista of a kind of a 1930s uh, New York with all of the old fashioned cars and everybody wearing, you know, pork pie hats and suits and stuff. And uh, for some reason, this really struck me as being very meaningful. And a couple of days later, I saw the first trailer for Peter Jackson's King Kong. And one of the shots in the trailer was uh, an establishing shot of 1930s New York looking exactly like it had in the dream. Now, I won't say I think it means anything. I will just say I was very affected by it and I was extremely excited for the film to come out. I knew that Peter Jackson was a huge fan of the original King Kong as I was myself and I thought this was going to be great. This was going to be amazing. Um, Rarely am I as excited for an upcoming big budget blockbuster type film. I usually don't expect much out of them. I'm not that interested anymore in the sort of um the the thrills and spills of those kind of things it's not really the kind of film i have a lot of time for even even back then i don't think i did so this is one of the few times when i can remember being really excited about a like a major expensive blockbuster type film so i went to see it when it came out um you know with high expectations to be sure but also also aware look it was likely to be a big silly you know smash fest as, as those big tentpole movies tend to be so let's let's do a quick recap. Um, the the 2005 King Kong is of course a very 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 slavishly um, detailed, slavishly repetitive remake of the original. Peter Jackson was incredibly influenced by the the original as a kid, and it went so far as to purchase some of the original Willis O'Brien miniatures. Um, and that's kind of what the film is. It's the same plot essentially. A in New York in the 1930s, because <clears throat> the original film is, is is contemporary and is from 1933, and Peter Jackson sets his in the original time period. You have a an unscrupulous film producer by the name of Carl Denham who takes a crew of people um, on a ship on a voyage to a place called Skull Island, where he wants to capture some kind of creatures or monsters. And and uh, originally he wants to film them and make a movie, but then he decides when he meets King Kong and a bunch of dinosaurs on the island because the island is this kind of lost world, this kind of prehistoric holdover. He decides to capture King Kong, take him back to New York, where, of course, Kong escapes, runs amok, and uh, eventually uh, is taken down by aeroplanes from the top of the Empire State Building. So hopefully, no spoilers there, it's one of the classic film scenarios, has been for almost 100 years. So, um, Jackson... <clears throat> actually had different scripts scripts for this over the years and some of them featured stuff happening in the first world war some of them were a lot sillier than what we finally got but what we did finally get was a a very devoted take on the story written by a mega super fan and whatever other faults the film has you you really get the sense that the people who made this really cared about what they were doing and uh, some of their decisions are maybe questionable and you may disagree with but it's clear that this is something that was coming from the heart. And my my interaction with this has changed over the years. I did enjoy it when it came out. It didn't blow my mind or anything, but it, it was what it needed to be. It was a heartfelt sort of devoted um, ode to the original done with up-to-date special effects. And it gave me the sort of adventure vibe that I did like. But let's let's have a quick review. So I watched it recently this week. The reason being... I was listening to School of Movies, which you probably know. They're they're a 
they do very good it's a podcast that does very in-depth takes on movies and having sort of been down on this film for for very many years because after i enjoyed it first i saw it again once or twice over the years i really felt the special effects didn't hold up and were kind of bringing everything down and a few other elements about the film um didn't work for me and and i heard i heard this podcast this week which was a uh, kind of an impassioned defense of the film and I felt like going back and giving it another chance just because it really did mean something to me once upon a time so this week I rewatched it with sort of the best of intentions I, w- I was really not expecting much and willing to cut the film some slack and just let it let it be what it was and enjoy it for what it was and I really did enjoy it so my, my quick review is that this film is, is long it's it's over three hours long it's like three hours and seven minutes it's bloated <clears throat> for sure but it's utterly and slavishly devoted to the original. It's it's a love letter to the original. Every element from the original has been expanded, whether that's something that needed to happen or not. Uh, Peter Jackson is opening up this world of both 1930s New York and the, the kind of lost world jungle of Skull Island. And every single element from the original he has given you 50% more. The whole film is over 50% longer than the original. And there's a love there, but there's also a an indul- a self-indulgence. And Peter Jackson, I mean, this won't be a surprise to anyone who's a fan of the Lord of the Rings films. And I'm, I'm not big into those, to be honest, but certainly the Hobbit films are, are regarded as being self-indulgent. He, he's one of these creators who, like Quentin Tarantino and like Stephen King, produces these very large, bloated works because he's just, he's such a big name that there's nobody who'll say no to him anymore. There's no editors or producers or anybody who can say, dude, this is good. It just, we just need like 80% of it. He, he He's beyond that. He's been beyond that for decades. And for all the wonderful brilliance and heart that he brings to what he does, I, I think he needs to listen to maybe somebody who who's a little more <clears throat> free with the with the editing scissors occasionally. That's my own take. But then when you love a property, you're just happy to have more of it. I, a lot of people do love Lord of the Rings and will happily watch nine hours of The Hobbit. Whereas I, as a casual fan of, of Tolkien, would, would prefer uh, maybe a tighter, maybe, a you know, I, th- I think maybe the three Hobbit movies would have made one good one or maybe one short miniseries just the same i love king kong and i will watch three hours of it so you know he's he's playing for the fans here that's absolutely what he's doing but so that this film is is both indulgent but it's also luxurious you know if you if you like this you're you're luxuriating in it you're watching hours and hours and hours of it and you're willing to see every little bit of that world manifested with with care and love and we're going to get into every every detail of that i absolutely promise you now Let's get some of the bad stuff out of the way because this film has not necessarily, well, has it aged well or was it never good? We're we're, we're going to get there. So let's talk about the CGI, folks. It's it's strained at times, no question about it. Um, and I remember thinking that even at the time. And this is an argument I've had with fans of Peter Jackson and fans of The Lost World. When you watch, or not The Lost World, uh, Lord of the Rings, when you watch any of those films now, the CGI is it looks a little tired let's put it that way and i'm not a big fan of cgi in general i mean when you compare this to jurassic park in 1993 which i still think holds up better than a lot of films that have been made since that use cgi and i am a bit of an anti-cgi snob it can be done for good and it, it's it's really hard when you rewatch these films not to come to the conclusion that the guys who made jurassic park stan winston and industrial light and magic 
that they were exercising incredible restraint because they, I mean, we're both, we're, we're talking about dinosaurs in both cases. So it's, it's a bit of a case of a like for like. There's a lost world scenario. There are dinosaurs. In Jurassic Park, they use CGI very sparingly. I think there's something like 15 minutes of dinosaurs in the whole film. And they use it only for things that they couldn't have done with props and live action um, live action creatures and mechanical creatures and stuff. And it's a wonderful blend of different kinds of special effects because obviously Stan Winston and his team were very experienced at that point and knew exactly what they were doing. But that's not entirely fair because it's not just restraint. It's the fact that at that time, CGI was incredibly new. They discovered it, you know, as, as a tool for movie special effects almost by accident during the making of. They went into Jurassic Park fully expecting to use to use they, I mean, they hired Phil Tippett who was a, a stop motion guy they were expecting the long shots of the dinosaurs to be done with 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 stop motion and in, in the middle of 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 uh, the pro- the production they realized that these special effects that they'd only been doing for small elements actually could could take a good chunk of the dinosaur uh, runtime and Phil Tippett apparently saw this and said I, I think we're extinct in in reference to his own career and um, which of course it was worked into the film as a line of dialogue given by some of the paleontologists which is wonderful but very soon after that as we all know movie studios went really insane with cgi and used it constantly whether or not it was helpful whether or not it was necessary and i mean i'd like to let peter jackson off the hook and say that it's just an element of the times that they were this was a time in films when audiences expected big blockbusters to have loads of cgi and whether or not it was kind of eye-popping and dramatic and colorful was more important than whether it was actually convincing and and so that brings me to back to king kong because is it convincing do do the environments and the animals look real no they don't and i'm going to bring this back to a quote that was made about the original king kong way back in 1933 in in reference to willis o'brien's animations somebody said I can't remember where I got this from, but I've always remembered that they said, it's not that Kong looks real, it's that he looks magically possible. You know, the film, if if the filmmaking is done well, it transports you into a slightly different place. You are not as critical if you're going along with the story, you're willing to allow for these things to happen. Um, and I do think that's what Peter Jackson's King Kong does fairly well as well. I think the special effects themselves do look strained and tired. They don't look lazy, because I know that Weta Workshop, who did the effects, are incredible artists. I've got one of my source books is called The World of Kong, um, the A Natural History of Skull Island, and it's full of all the pre-production artwork. And those guys are amazing artists and creature creators, and they deeply, deeply cared about what they were doing. The whole film just feels like they were being pushed too far for maybe the amount of time and money that they had. Uh, the film is is like straining at the edges with the amount, the sheer amount of CGI happening at times. It's a little bit like, you know, episode one stuff where there are some actors and literally everything else around them, the environment and the creatures are CGI. And sometimes the, the green screening, putting them in there isn't great. And sometimes the light matching between the, the re- things that are real and the things that are computerized isn't great either. And if this ruins the film for every anybody, I... I hear you. I really do. And I couldn't look past that for many, many years. And I saw this film as being very, not necessarily dated, just the product of a time when that is how films looked. And that's kind of how people wanted the films to look. And I'd love to let Peter Jackson off the hook for this, but he's done it. All his films are like this. And we know that 
Um, restraint is not one of his qualities. But his qualities are heart and imagination and love for the source material. Other things that we need to get out of the way because they're just not good. The natives in this film, the Skull Islanders, um, are a pretty bad racist caricature. And I really don't know how this got done in, as late as 2005. Um, I- even in the original, they're they're kind of not as bad as this, which is which is weird to say. Um, one of the they're just these horrible you know nasty looking almost creature like people rolling their eyes constantly and having sharp pointy teeth and all they seem to do is like wail and scream and they're they're superstitious and they're dangerous and all of the negative nasty stereotypes that we associate with native peoples from you know 200 years of sort of colonial adventure fiction it's all in there and i really don't know what to say about that except i think jackson was deliberately reaching for that old history of kind of lost world literature which we are absolutely going to get to don't worry and and we'll get to the colonialism too don't worry about that either um i can't overlook this it's it's a it's a nasty choice um and it doesn't do anything to help the story it didn't need to happen the only thing i can think of that he might have been going for besides deliberately aping those old sort of that old-fashioned style of adventure story that very colonial style the only thing i can think of is that he's doing his best to make skull island into a nightmarish place it's not a like i said this is not a realistic film nothing about skull island or the creatures or the inhabitants of it is realistic or designed to make you feel like it's real it's supposed to be like a nightmare there's almost an expressionist quality to it and the even the island itself looks threatening when they first arrive the the rocks look like the the plates on the back of some kind of gigantic threatening dinosaur when they first see the wall it looks like the the spinal cord of some massive dead creature so the whole island is this like nightmarish um uh, you know unreal place it's a bit dr caligari it's a little bit kind of yeah like german expressionism so that's all i've got to try and explain this but by and large it's it's bad and um i don't i don't approve and it, it does it does take me out of the story a little bit the a lot of the humor in this also is is pretty clunky and pretty broad and maybe seems to be aimed at kids a little bit and i've softened on this kind of over the years um you know i don't mind it doesn't bother me as much as it used to but really the the score which i think is howard shore I'm forgetting here that Howard Shore actually did record a score for the film, but then he walked out after some kind of disagreement with Peter Jackson. And the score that you hear today was done by James Newton Howard, which means that maybe there is a Howard Shore score out there somewhere. And I guess I've got to track it down and listen to it. It really overdoes it for the humor bits. There there were like wah-wah trombone sounds and this kind of like kind of reedy instrument stuff going on whenever something goofy happens and jack black is mugging or whatever and that doesn't really work for me a whole lot but it, it bothers me less than it used to and and the final scratch against this film is the is the dialogue which is very broad also very on the nose and this your mileage may vary as they say online with this one so a lot of the dialogue is deliberately trying to remind you of the original one which is all fa- number one it's it's filtered through two layers of, of time here because it's a 1930s movie which is right you know pretty close to the the beginning of sound in films the jazz singer the first sound movie was only 1927 but even even so the the the, the writer of the dialogue who i think was uh, ruth rose i think her name was she was the wife of the director and um, she um deliberately was going for a kind of a fairy tale quality to 
the dialogue and she she was trying to hit this Beauty and the Beast theme over and over again and Jackson's film does that as well and it's got this kind of timeless fairy tale quality to it which again kind of when you're in the mood for this and you're going along for the ride it kind of tricks your brain into switching into this sort of not quite realistic fairy tale world which you know it, this time around at least it worked for me it hasn't always so that can be a bad thing or not depending on your point of view now i'm going to talk about the timing the timeline in which this is set because well jackson didn't have to set it in 1933 in fact when dino de Laurentiis remade kong in the 1970s he gave it a contemporary like the first one is it was a contemporary time it was made in 1933 the second version is contemporary to the 1970s so peter jackson could have made one you know in, in 2005 but he didn't now you could argue that this is due to his slavish devotion and nostalgia for the original uh, and, and just as much as he likes everything else about the film he is maybe captivated by the 1930s new york setting and i think that's probably true but i have another take on this which is that um well this is the 1930s is really the last time that you can realistically imagine a lost world scenario now lost world literature you know it, ha it has a history which is ultimately ultimately tied to and intimately tied to the history of course of um of colonialism i'm just going to briefly say on my rewatch the 19 the I lo i've always loved the 1930s aesthetic the art deco that the clothing the the building like the empire state building that kind of style but the the depression setting of it the economic depression didn't bother me much in uh, in 2005 but it, it hits a lot harder now post 2008 and, and post covid and it actually brings a lot more sympathy to to the character of Anne Darrow, who's Naomi Watts, and, and her travails as, as someone who's really down and out at the beginning. It feels a lot. I mean, that's just that's more about me than anything else, but just something that struck me this time. So, the 1930s setting, I think, is just about the last time you could imagine realistically a Lost World scenario and Lost World storytelling as a, a serious sort of storytelling trope sort of drifts away after this point you know from something that was once taken seriously and was once a big deal it kind of drifts off into like juvenilia and uh, just starts showing up in kids books and kids tv shows and stuff like this now other source here is a book called king kong cometh which is a selection of essays written by paul a woods and i just have something noted here on page 183 oh yeah we have this quote here also in the production diaries, Jackson responded to the question, why did you decide to do your remake in the 1930s and not in modern times? The main answer is that I wanted to do the sequence with Kong fighting the biplanes on top of the Empire State Building, confirmed the director, illustrated by his collection of model World War I aircraft and an animatic showing a dark Kong on the Manhattan skyline. I think the other reason is it's the last age of exploration, if you like. It's the last time period in which there could be blank spots on the atlas. Despite his use of modern technology, Jackson insists, I'm wanting the film to be deliberately old-fashioned, a mysterious escapist film like the ones I used to love as a kid. The Tarzan movies are the, one, the ones with a forgotten world full of dinosaurs. Expressing bemusement at the high-tech sci-fi strain in most modern fantasy, with the notable exception of his own Tolkien adaptations, the monster Meister stressed, I want a throwback to scary natives and island monsters. So that cuts back to what we said about the, the scary natives earlier on. Now, I want to say more about 
um, ad- adventure literature and, and lost world fiction because of course I do the so th- there's a great quote that's um, re- repeated several times in the film where, where Carl Denham who's Jack Black he's the kind of renegade filmmaker who takes everybody to the island he keeps saying uh, you know there's still some mystery out there and when, when as his crew one by one get massacred by the monsters of Skull Island he keeps saying kind of selfishly oh he died pr- wanting to prove there was still some mystery out there and I think the 1930s is kind of the last time that you could take that seriously. And I think it's not a coincidence that two of the last great Lost World stories happen in 1933. The first one being, of course, Kong when Skull Island being the Lost World. The other is Lost Horizon by James Hilton, which is where we get the idea of Shangri-La as this kind of hidden kingdom somewhere in the Himalayas. And after this, you don't see a whole lot of it. And I... It's it's like Jackson is working here in a, a an out of date genre. I mean, it's it's been superseded by the march of time. It's not easy to believe that there might be hidden places, hidden races, you know, hidden valleys or islands full of dinosaurs out there still somewhere. And not only is it an, an you know a, by definition an out of date genre, but it's it's on PC pretty much by de- definition as well, which is why he maybe he feels okay putting in these very old fashioned European colonial takes on natives because. As a genre itself, it is intimately um, colonial, so it kind of has its roots with King Solomon's Mines by Haggard in, in 1885. And when that book came out, it's worth noting, that was taken very seriously. It was advertised in huge, with huge posters all over London as this great big cultural event. And while Haggard definitely stresses the adventure side of it, and he wrote it apparently as a kind of a bet to see whether or not he could produce something along the lines of uh, Treasure Island, uh, as the story goes. Still, this was something that was taken seriously, and there's a lot of personal knowledge and experience in the novel, because Haggard, of course, did know Africa, and he had lived in South Africa, and he, in fact, was present um, with the British Army when they annexed uh, some former colonies of the Boers, and, in fact, I believe he raised the flag over one of them during an early skirmish. So he he knew what he was talking about and he was dealing with something that was very contemporary and very relevant to his reading audience at the time by comparison by 1912 when uh, Arthur Conan Doyle writes The Lost World which is like maybe the next really important um, kind of cultural installation into the history of Lost World literature and of course the the one that gives the subgenre its name you know as soon as that um, it's pretty much a kid's book. As much as I love The Lost World, and I did an episode about it last year, um, or earlier this year, which do check out. It's all about, it's called The Prehistory of the Lost World. It's it's presented very differently. It's no longer something that is like very serious material to be considered by adults, and it no longer is it, you know, trying to connect to real world political events. By this point, it's openly for kids, and it's openly a bit of escapist fun. And he opens the book with a poem that goes, I have wrought my simple plan if I have brought one hour of joy to any boy who's half a man or any man who's half a boy. So I I love The Lost World, but it is openly a kid's book. And I read it as a 13-year-old and it probably just at the right time and it absolutely did blow my mind. But like in no way could it imagine, could you imagine that it's trying to connect to 
real-world geopolitics the way um, Haggard, you know, decades earlier, was responding to the, the real-life exploration of Africa by European explorers, the real-life um, discovery of archaeological ruins such as Great Zimbabwe, which were kicking up a big fuss in those days. The Lost World is a bit of fluff by comparison, and I don't mean that negatively. I just mean that the, the whole Lost World genre is so tied to a particular time and place in, in colonial history that it really hadn't got long to survive even by kind of the turn of the 20th century. And interestingly, the same year, 1912, when The Lost World comes out, Edgar Rice... No, it's, it's worth mentioning that by comparison with Haggard, Doyle had never been to South America where The Lost World happens, so he was working with secondhand knowledge. And, it, you know, the genre had gone from something that you, you wrote about because you knew you, you had first-hand experience to, you know, something you could kind of make up and just... In a way, you could say it had returned to its sort of Jules Vernean roots. Verne, of course, did most of his uh, his research by reading rather than by going to the exotic places he described. But 1912, when The Lost World comes out, also Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan comes out. And this is, you know, um, an incredibly successful string of books. This is the first one in 1912. And Burroughs hadn't a notion of trying to co yeah, convey some kind of realistic... Uh, version of Africa but you know he's just he's never been there he's an American he hasn't uh, he hasn't gone to the places he's writing about but he doesn't care Africa is this magical never never land where you know white explorers and adventurers can go and be you know heroes uh, and discover lost cities and stuff like that and and the Tarzan's uh, sequels as fun as they are only get sillier and sillier and more childish um, as the years go by interestingly the same year 1912 he also writes uh, princess of mars which kind of this is early but signals the death or at least has the seeds of the death knell of of uh, lost world literature in there because you know the, the the genre goes off in different directions from here and one of the main directions that that survives let's say the second world war is that people start imagining their you know imaginary adventures no longer on earth because there aren't any places where you can kind of convincingly hide a lost valley or a lost civilization so instead they have their characters go into space of course princess of mars has john carter going to a fictional mars called barsoom and that's where he has all his adventures because even by 1912 you know and and as uh, the birth of tarzan I, I think subconsciously people recognize that you couldn't continually write stories where people discovered dinosaurs just you know the next valley over it kind of was a genre that had the seeds of its own demise built into it so like i say 1930s you've got king kong and lost horizon the last great influential lost world or lost race novels and then after the second world war with the kind of acceleration of technology and travel and transport that happens at that time it's just very difficult to imagine anybody discovering a lost world after that you know with, with the amount of expansion into the south pacific and elsewhere in the world to places that had been kind of remote with the Americans island hopping and you know a lot of great literature and story fantastic literature came out of that time but again the idea that these mystery places there were still some mystery out there as Carol Denham would say became tougher to imagine and if you want to say there was a bit of a resurgence of lost world novels in the 1980s with Indiana Jones well man like by that point it is not only pastiche but it's nostalgia and it could only have been set in the 1930s because nobody would believe if george lucas had set had you know made a set of movies with an archaeologist discovering all these crazy new you know civilizations and, and relics 
in, in the modern times, you know, it's it's a throwback by that point already. So yeah, Indiana Jones comes into the story too. My last point on this element about the 1930s being a lost world, you know, Peter Jackson recreates two lost worlds in this film. Um, not only Skull Island, but also the, the 1930s New York, which is of course utterly gone and to which some of us have almost the same amount of nostalgia as you would for Skull Island. Skull Island, it's important to note in, in the film, is is sinking. Now, this is only hinted at in the film. The expanded material in, like, the book I have here, A Natural History of Skull Island, goes into this more, but while it's not made overt in the film, I think it's there subconsciously. The shape of the island, uh, the fact that it seems to be sinking into the sea, the fact that when you see it from a distance, it's got all these kind of spiky ridges that seem to be separated by uh, bodies of water as if it as if it's sinking. Not only is the 1930s the last time in which, uh, you know, viewers could kind of realistically imagine discovering a lost world, but this is the last chance the explorers have to get to Skull Island because it's sinking. So this is your last chance in more than one way. And in the expanded material in uh, this, this book, Natural History of Skull Island, uh, most of the story is about um, visits to the island after the frame, time frame of the film, uh, uh, indicating that the island did indeed sink into the sea at some point in the, in the late 30s and that it's now gone. And there's just something about Skull Island that makes it difficult to imagine it existing in modern times. I want to say things that are positive about the film. It's gorgeous looking. It's beautiful. Um, everybody involved here deeply cared about what they were doing. And, and whether or not you question some of their decisions, I think their heart was absolutely in the right place. Weta Workshop, who did all the special effects, make both... 1930s New York and Skull Island look absolutely amazing. There is two magical Lost Worlds recreated for this. And most of the actors I enjoy in this one as well. And Naomi Watts in particular is absolutely brilliant. There's no... She's got the right kind of vulnerability, but also a kind of a, a strength. And um, like I said, the, the idea of, you know, people really being down and out and starving and hungry and working hard and frustrated by their defeats in a depression era in New York, she gets all that across fantastically. There's never a question in your mind as to why, you know, a, a creature like King Kong would become fixated with her, but we'll get to that too. So I have lots of time for Naomi Watson this. Uh, Kong himself looks great as well. Um, clear, uh, you know, no question, the most expressive version of Kong even and as I say that as a huge Willis O'Brien fan as well and um, there are problems with the lighting sometimes to, and how he's matched in with his surroundings but by and large he looks amazing I love the fact that they've gone with Kong being a proper you know quadrupedal mostly quadrupedal silverback gorilla rather than just like I mean I enjoy the, the more recent the, the 2017 Skull Island where they deliberately have King Kong it's, he's a throwback. He looks like a 1930s movie monster. He's, he looks like a guy in a suit. And that's fun as well. I'm okay with that. But I, I like the fact that they went different ways with this. So Kong is really expressive in this. Obviously, he's played by Andy Serkis, who's really famous for doing motion capture. And I don't always like what he does. I'm not I'm not a huge Andy Serkis mark. But um, he, he does a good job here. And he uh, he pops up as, as the cook on the ship as well, who has some pretty broad, humorous moments but uh, i've come to like him over the years but by and large folks you sit through this from start to finish and you let your mind just go with it and it's one of the best adventure films there ever has and i say that with the caveat that you know adventure films and exploration films and lost world films are inherently an old-fashioned out-of-date and un-pc genre because they just are because they just involve they come from 
the origin of European folks like going out into the world to discover quote unknown things and quote exotic people and that is the origin of the genre and as much as I love it I think I think we have to be honest about what it is now that's not to say that it can't change and couldn't be other things in the future but effectively it's based on a set of assumptions and and dreams and hopes and wishes that are tied to a particular time and place I figure it's the nature of it is changing at the moment and I think st- uh, stories like this are probably on the way out to a certain degree you've got late throwbacks like uh, Congo by Michael Crichton in the late 70s but that's that's a deliberate throwback and a deliberate attempt to remaking Solomon's Minds in a techno thriller kind of way so this is maybe the best one you're going to get if you like that sort of thing let's put it that way Okay, let's get to colonialism for real this time. So, what does the what does the crew of the venture, that's the name of the ship, and Carol Denham, and most importantly Anne herself, what do they what do they represent? Because they come to the island, they disrupt everything. Um, Kong, who was previously the lord of his own domain, he was unassailable. He lives on top of the island, looking down at everything like the Lion King. It's his domain, and he was, as they say in the film, he was a god in the world he knew. But once the ship arrives, and particularly once he sees Anne, that's it, he's done for. As the the, the, the fake Arabian proverb that was made up by Marion C. Cooper at the start of the original Kong says, And lo, the beast looked upon the face of beauty, and stayed his hand from killing, and from that day he was as one dead. Which they do use in the Peter Jackson one eventually, because, well, Peter Jackson just can't resist uh, chucking in as many uh, odes and nods to the original as he can. But... Right, what what does Anne in particular represent to Kong? The fact that she comes to his island, he looks on her, and he's never the same again. And from from that point on, he he is ultimately doomed. Well, guess what, folks? Surprise. You won't be surprised. I think it's all about colonialism. So, notwithstanding the love element, and I use the word love in, in brackets, in, in the original Kong, it, it's implied that Kong is somehow fixated on Anne in a kind of a sexual way, and... There's a whole, uh, a whole backlog of, of sub- subconscious stuff there that I kind of don't really want to go into. You can't overlook it, but it's not really what I want to talk about here. There's all unfor- unfortunate connotations about race and miscegenation and all of that, like mostly tied to the, the unfortunate historical um, depiction of African people as looking like apes, which shows up in surprisingly late, actually, in a lot of really terrible pseudo-scientific uh, literature up in, uh, as far as the 1950s and I'm sure there are still people peddling such nonsense uh, and it, it's worth saying at this point that in under certain uh, under in certain contexts not nearly to the same degree the Irish were p- portrayed as apes frequently um, in the English press as late as the turn of the 20th century especially in like Punch magazine when they were trying to make the Irish independent movements look uh, silly or embarrassing it's not at all the same thing, um, but both are dehumanizing to different degrees. And interestingly, Peter Jackson's King Kong is not interested, I don't think he's interested in the idea that Kong is fixated on Anne necessarily in a in a sexual way. There's a kind of a more maternal element to their relationship. She behaves more like a mother with him, and he's more like a sort of a gigantic, overgrown, tantrum-throwing toddler. Like, he's big, he's powerful, he doesn't know his own strength. Um, And a lot of this idea I did get from the podcast School of Movies, where they they make this point. And I think that's important, and I think it's deliberate on the part of Peter Jackson. 
one thing that does trouble me is the idea that like he sees Anne and somehow she's different because the it's made clear that the islanders sacrifice women to him all the time and you see there's there's like a boneyard that they they the characters walk through and somebody says they've been all you know, the other women have been ripped limb from limb and we know that they are the previous brides of kong because the skeletons are wearing the special necklace that they give to Anne. so the implication is that kong is placated every once in a while by being given a native woman and he just kind of tears them apart or eats them or it's mentioned that they are torn apart and yet Anne is different and even though Jackson is trying to avoid the sexual angle here, I really don't like that implication that it's such a colonial thing that the history of colonial literature and adventure literature is replete with this idea that, oh, you know, once the natives see a white woman, that's that's different. She is like special and different and um, is more important to them and is kind of rated higher in some way. And that does trouble me. I, I don't think Jackson meant any of this. I think it's subconscious. And I, I, I even though I think it's unfortunate, the performance of Naomi Watts um, goes a long way towards kind of smoothing this out just because she is she's just kind of hypnotic. And her relationship with, with Kong as done by Andy Serkis is genuinely very affecting and very, very... It feels natural and, and, and positive. And you never question why he would become um, enamored of her just because she's so she's so lovely she's so well played she's so nice but again you've got that sort of colonial hang-up uh, as usual one thing i'm more interested in than talking about the the sexual angle um or or even the slave narrative so that's another another good point that school of movies make they say i mean kong is a character who is ripped from his homeland he's put in chains he's taken across the ocean he's brought to america um, he's paraded in front of people he's made to do um, you know humiliating things and uh, the, the fear of you know quote-unquote civilized white society is that someday these enslaved you know the creatures unfortunately um, are going to rise up and escape and cause havoc and you know subconsciously ha have their way with our white women as the, the, the fear used to be and hence all of the uh, the historical taboo in america against uh, mixed marriages and, and, and stuff like that they do a really good job on that podcast talking about that angle i'm going to go different i want to talk about colonialism because you've got this group of people who come to the island and they bring trinkets and treasures right they bring things that are going to on the face of it make your life better and that you then become addicted to and that you then can't do without and to me that's what that's what Anne represents but I'll come back to that. I want to talk about uh, I want to talk about Carl Denham. So Carl Denham is the, the the filmmaker guy who brings everybody to the island. He's the one driving the narrative. He's got the map. He's got the plan. He's got the idea. He kind of gets the whole plot going, and uh, he's of course played by a young Jack Black who. On the one hand, was chosen because, you know, he's got the right kind of facial structure and body shape to look a little bit like a young Orson Welles from about the same period, especially with the kind of 1930s hairstyle he's got. I must say, I love I love his wardrobe in this. He, he wears amazing sort of 1930s chocolate brown suits and uh, he's got a cool hairstyle. And um, he's also based on Marion C. Cooper, who was the who was the actual director of King Kong 1933. And Cooper was, in reality, like a real kind of last last generation, go out into the jungle, have an adventure and make a film kind of guy. He was famous for making quote-unquote jungle movies. 
uh, you know, back when tra travel and transport were expensive and difficult and people just didn't see as much of the world as they can today, uh, he was making, uh, Cooper was making films in quote-unquote tropical places, uh, you know, showing people footage that they couldn't see anywhere else. And Cooper largely based Carl Denham on himself. So you can tell he's a guy who rents a ship and wants to go somewhere tropical. It doesn't really matter where. Find some animals, film some stuff. And like he talks very little about scripts or stories. He seems to be going out into the wilds without a script or a story. He just hopes that he'll find something exotic, film that, and that, that'll be good enough. Which in those days, I think quite often it was because in reality, Cooper had a successful career as a maker of jungle movies. Now... So let's look at this. So the, the the overall picture here is that an industrialized capitalist nation comes to a, quote, primitive world. And they bring treasures, they bring trinkets, they bring things that you want. And this is, you know, largely symbolized by, by Anne herself. She is, as I've said, she's magnetic, she's hypnotic. Kong sees her once and he's doomed. He can't ever do without her. And on the one hand... This is like a, you know, a very heartfelt relationship between the two of them because the performances are so good, but it's also something which dooms Kong and kind of reminds me of what happens inevitably in history when these industrialized nations come to a, um, a less high-tech nation and they've got the upper hand when it comes to military stuff, but they also have the upper hand when it comes to shiny trinkets and beads. So you are living in this kind of Edenic na naivety on Skull Island, as King Kong is, and you didn't know that you needed this stuff, but once you've seen it, you can't do without it. One minute you're a god in your own world, doing your own thing. Next thing, you know, these folks show up and they've got horses and they've got guns and they've got whiskey and they've got venereal disease and things are never going to be the same again on your island. So they bring you stuff that you want and eventually stuff that you need and can't do without. And in no way am I trivializing the benefits of um, industri post-industrial society when it comes to medicine and expanded lifespan and uh, you know fewer people in poverty and all that that sort of thing but at what cost your your way of life is utterly changed in many cases utterly destroyed your world will eventually be overrun by these invaders who will basically eventually marginalize you in one way or another and there are there's a kind of a sad inevitability to this as an amateur studier of, of history and in particular the colonial period this has happened almost without exception um around the world and the the theory of inevitability is big in this movie actually because there's a there's a line of dialogue which is repeated um where like jackson is, is obsessed with kind of setting all these pieces in order he's he's telling this story as if it had to happen this way and i think that's because he's been a, such a fan of the original he's watched it so many times over the years that the basic plotline of King Kong has become like this, um, this primal fairy tale story to him. It couldn't possibly have happened any other way. And there's a line of dialogue where Jack Black first meets, he first sees Anne Arrow's reflection in a mirror, and he he sees her and he says, "It was always going to be you." So Peter Jackson, and they say this on School of Movies, Peter Jackson is putting, he's maneuvering all of his pieces into order, as if you know they're. They're you know, mechanical figures who are stuck to the floor, being wound around in, into the appropriate place because he can't imagine it happening any other way. And that's kind of how I think about industrialization and colonialism. You know, the world, there, there's nowhere in the world that will forever be cut off from this and there's nowhere in the world that will not be affected by it 
in, in what is kind of sadly the same inevitable sort of a way. So that, that those were the ideas that came into my head upon this watch. So Anne Darrow has a lovely heartwarming relationship with Kong, but she also represents something that, um, you know, there's all, all sorts of biblical allusions you could make here about people living in innocence and then realizing they, they need something that they didn't know they needed and being destroyed because of it. So there's a lot of different directions uh, you could take that. But let's talk about Carol Denham. So Carol Denham is central to this as well. It's not just Anne Darrow because Carol Denham is really the villain here. That's This is my, my thesis on this. And it's weird because I really like him. I, I think this is my favorite thing Jack Black has ever done. He's not known for his straight roles and he does get to apply a lot of humor here, but he gets more serious as the film goes on and you realize that he is more of a villain. But we're supposed to like him, at least for the first half of this film, because he's positive and he's excited and he wants adventure and he's the one driving the plot. He's the one with the map. He's the one who wants everybody to go to the island. And he's a, he's a go-getter. He, he says things like, you know, he never lets anything get him down. He continually says, defeat is only momentary. Think like a winner. You know, he's everything the American, you know, red-blooded capitalist or colonialist should admire because he gets shit done. You know, he doesn't allow anything to hold him back. And I do enjoy him and his, his performance is bright and bubbly and he's got all of that sort of, you know, slightly mischievous fun that Jack Black brings to roles. He, he's, he's, he stands for adventure and he's charming and he's confident, but he, there's such a dark underline to this because he's lying constantly. He lies to his, he lies to his assistant. He lies to the Hollywood moguls. He lies to the captain. He lies to Anne. He's got the cops after him. He doesn't pay anybody. He he lies to, to Driscoll, who's the, the, the writer of the film. Um, he screws everybody over to get what he wants, and he doesn't really care what happens to them. Halfway through the film, the, the Captain Engelhorn approaches him and says, you know, you're wanted. The police are looking for you. They're calling for you to come back on the radio. And, uh, you know, Denham gives this kind of heart-rending speech where he says, oh, you know, you've got to let me do this. I've... I've um, you know, I've, I've chanced everything I have on this. And the captain says, no, you've chanced everything I have on this. And that's Denim, you know, as charming as he is. And it's it's hard. It took me a few watches to kind of realize this properly, just because Jack Black seems like such an innocent and exciting guy. He's such a villain. He'll, he'll throw anybody under the bus to get what he wants. And he only becomes more and more sinister as the film goes. He's, he puts the lives of all his crew in danger they're getting massacred by the Skull Island creatures left, right and centre. And all he ever does is he says, he makes these outrageous false promises and says, well, you know, he died doing what he believes. We'll, we'll, we'll get money, we'll get paid for this and I'll send the money to his wife and kids. And as more guys get chomped and he just keeps saying it, it becomes clear that he doesn't mean any of it at all. So his, his creative urge is by nature destructive. And the creative urge of sort of post-industrial society and and colonialism is destructive and if this reminds you of a famous creative type from another dinosaur movie maybe john hammond as played by sir richard attenborough well maybe it should because in some ways king kong is a distinctly post jurassic park movie and the idea that the great capitalist urge to create is also what destroy what dooms us and will ultimately destroy um, the the this or sort of you know idea of the pre-industrial idol is is very powerful here, and uh, Kong, you know Skull Island is 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 nothing if not coded 
as a dangerous Eden full of potential snakes, but one which is fragile and about to be destroyed by the intervention of 20th century society. The flip side of Denim being a villain is I started to think differently about Driscoll in this in this version of the movie as well. Driscoll is the writer. He's the main love interest for Anne. And, you know, the first bunch of times I watched this, I just saw him as, you know, he's casted as a, he's coded as a good guy. He's a love interest. Um, there's not much else going on. Much has been written, especially in, in my King Kong cometh book, about Kong as a rival for her affection and uh, and the Driscoll character in the in the original film but what struck me as interesting this time around in the Peter Jackson King Kong was Driscoll isn't quite a good guy because he also represents the colonial force that's that's coming inevitably against Kong when you watch it again like notice the difference in attitude towards when Anne is is hanging out with Kong and um, obviously she's distressed at first but she comes to realize that Kong wants to look out for her and look after her and will fight all these other monsters off to to protect her and she falls asleep you know peacefully in his paw and then uh, when he when he's on top of his mountain and then she's comforted but then Driscoll comes to quote-unquote rescue her and she wakes up in the paw and sees Driscoll who is you know she's kind of gone through a change where she's on some level she's accepted this new life I know it's it's a brief span of time, but at least she she appreciates what Kong is doing for her. And then she opens her eyes and sees Driscoll there, and there's a weird long pause where I think she's not sure, you know, that he's really the good guy, or that you know she really wants to go with him because you know as scary and unpredictable as Kong is, some somewhere unconsciously she knows what Driscoll represents. He represents the in, incursion of all of this sort of colonial evil into his into Kong's world and she knows somewhere that this confrontation which is coming can only end in disaster for Kong. I only wish the film had sort of stuck to its guns on this because uh, to my eyes Driscoll's attitude throughout the film is a little bit inconsistent. There are other times where he's absolutely coded as nothing more than a good guy and she loves him and you know he's doing the right thing to go and rescue her Um. Especially at the end, there's a, like when Kong finally dies and she's reunited with him. I'd love if her, you know, joy at being reunited with him had been a little more ambiguous, so as to maybe plant the seed in the mind as to like, you know, well, is this really a happy ending? Have we really done the right thing? I mean, the audience is is most certainly supposed to sympathize with Kong, but and and so does Anne. That's that's clear, but. I'd love to have seen that play a little bit more into her attitude towards Driscoll. I'd, lo- I'd love to, if that had been a tiny bit more, let's say, ambiguous. Okay, let's talk about dinosaurs. The King Kong has an amazing array of dinosaurs, and this is something that Jackson loved and cared about and wanted to expand upon from the original film. Here's what my name for this section Um these are post-Jurassic Park retro dinosaurs. What do I mean by that? I mean, this is a mix between nobody in 2005 can make a film with CGI dinosaurs and not be influenced by Jurassic Park because Jurassic Park just set the template for what dinosaurs are, quote, supposed to look like on film. Hardly anybody after 1993 has ever attempted to make a dinosaur film without having some kind of raptor analogs in there just because Jurassic Park was so influential and before that, like, they were not well-known dinosaurs. And we'll talk, they're not even real velociraptors, but that's a story for another day. Um, 
so the dinosaurs in King Kong are absolutely affected by by that as well. And yet Jackson is trying to do something else too. He's trying to bring in the kind of retro dinosaur look. So the way dinosaurs were depicted in the early 20th century, what they would have looked like, you know, according to the pop imagination in 1933. And his inspirations for this are clearly stuff like the, the paintings of Charles R. Knight and, and 19th century dinosaur artist who was incredibly influential. And obviously the dinosaurs of 1933 King Kong, which were sculpted by a guy named Marcel Delgado, who himself was obviously very influenced by Charles R. Knight. He does a few clever things here. He, and I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't only know this from the film, but also from the book as well. So the expanded universe for this King Kong movie is very, very interesting. And I will talk about that. So the, the, the long-necked sauropods we see, they're not brachiosaurs as they were in Jurassic Park, which was trying to be very up-to-date with its dinosaurs. They're brontosaurs. Why is that? Because brontosaurus is a much more old-fashioned name for what we now call an apatosaurus. But it's got, you know, it means thunder lizard. It's the kind of name that you hear when you're a kid and has a lot of uh, resonance. And he's deliberately going for the old-fashioned name there. The, the naming convention in science is that whichever name is is described first takes precedence and I, what i think happened there was um what was called brontosaur for many years was later on discovered to have been actually what was earlier named as a, a patosaurus so the name reverted to that but the name brontosaurus um was very popular in dinosaur books for many years and has a lot of nostalgia i think associated with it also the look of the dinosaurs is deliberately it's it's jurassic park but it's also a little bit deliberately old-fashioned so the, the, the sauropods and the, the theropods, the, the, the pseudo-T-Rexes, they're all, they look good, but they're kind of chunkier and more squat and a little more boxy looking than Jurassic Park dinosaurs. And this is because that's the way people imagine dinosaurs to be in, in the early 20th century. They were slow and, you know, swamp dwelling and just go back and watch the old King Kong where the sauropod lives in a swamp and is a carnivore for no reason at all. Uh... The book expands on this deliciously and gives all of these creatures a kind of an imaginary evolutionary background. It turns out that the gigantic T-Rex type things are in fact called V-Rexes, which is Vastatosaurus rex. There are creatures that look like, for all intents and purposes, behave like Jurassic Park raptors. They're like two-legged pack hunters with uh, with a sharp pointy claw on their foot, but they're called uh, Venatosaurus. So there's all these really cool... Um, kind of uh, speculative zoology going on in the book which which is really really exciting um so yeah i i enjoy the look of the dinosaurs here they're definitely responding to jurassic park but they're doing their own thing as well and it it's one of the things that gives this film a wonderful old-fashioned lost world adventure vibe it wouldn't have been the same if they were you know up-to-date feathered dinosaurs um it's kind kind of trying to do two things here but i i really enjoy it Moving on from that, the general ecology of Skull Island is absolutely fascinating and is one of the real uh, treasures of the film. And one of the, one, if, if you watch this film for no other reason, it's the world building of Skull Island and Jackson goes to town on filling out every single element of it. It feels like a living, bustling place. It's, it's full of magic, but it's full of danger. It's, it's a beautiful Eden. There were gorgeous shots of the brontosaurus raising their heads with these... Uh, these kind of um, sort of native architecture behind them, these temples and beautiful green hills and flying animals and bugs everywhere. And it's all very influenced by 
I'm going to say the the original art of Willis O'Brien before he made the first King Kong, which itself is hugely influenced by Gustave Doré, who was a 19th century um, etcher and uh, did a lot of work for, he did a lot of famous images for the uh, the Divine Comedy and stuff like that. But he cre- he did a lot of drawings of these kind of mystical jungle worlds where there would be thick undergrowth and then here and there there would be a shaft of light coming down through the trees and it's as they mentioned in about the original king kong i think willis o'brien said he, he'd wanted it to be a jungle where anything could be could be hiding you know it, this is not a real jungle this is a fairy tale jungle this is a jungle of the id of the imagination and wow there's a whole lot of really weird um uh, psychological ideas about the original king kong uh, as to the whole island being you know, the aid of Carol Denham. And I will talk about that in this week's Patreon episode, if anyone's interested. Um, the, uh, they mentioned the idea of Skull Island, Skull being the head, the head being the, the id. Really, really interesting. They make the connection to Forbidden Planet, if anybody's seen that. So the island and the ecology of it is way more fleshed out than it is in the original Kong. Um, the only thing I will say about it is it's so carnivore heavy. This makes no sense from an ecological point of view in some ways. And which only adds to its kind of nightmare quality. It's like it's like a world in which every single thing just wants to eat you. So yeah, more nightmarish than real ecology for sure. But I will mention this book has some of my favorite world building extra stuff attached to it. There is, so not only this book, um, A Natural History of Skull Island, which is wonderful. It's mostly pre-production art by Weta Workshop. Um, but it's written in the style of like a um, a field guide to Skull Island written by naturalists who've been there. Also, uh, the PS2 game that came out at this time is really worth a look. It's difficult to get a hold of and to play, and I'm not even a gamer myself, but watch a few minutes of, of the playbacks of it on YouTube, and it just goes to show it's, it adds an extra element to the island. It, it brings a lot more world building to it, more creatures, more landscape, more ecology, and... Um, yeah, like I'm, I don't care about the gameplay. I'm sure it doesn't hold up because it's so old. But as a piece of expanding the world, it's absolutely gorgeous and worth a quick look. I'm going to say now about the Patreon. If you take a look, you can click in the links down below on the episode, or um, there'll be a link from the social media bits and bobs. And what we're what the what we're going to put out is a more in-depth look of the natural history of Skull Island and the book King Kong Cometh by Paul A. Woods. These are both my sort of background reading for this episode, but for the bonus, um, if you sign up for Patreon this week, it's going to be, I'm going to go through those and talk about a lot more about the original Kong and a lot more about Weta Workshop's expanded version of Skull Island for Peter Jackson's King Kong, both of which are absolutely fascinating. So by all means, go and check that one out and that will be our latest bonus episode if you sign up for the Patreon. Now, I'm coming to the end of this. Can you imagine that? Um, the la- One of my last points is what I'm calling the sense of adventure. So when all is said and done, when I've criticized the unfortunate racism of the, nat- of the natives, the occasional tired nature of the CGI, what does this film do, best of all, that finally got me to start talking about it for, I don't know how long it's been. There is a wonderful sense of adventure to this film if you can let yourself slip into it. It's an old-fashioned vibe, which is by necessity, given given the genre. And, and adventure is an inherent, to me personally, it's an inherently childhood thing, and it's difficult to recapture that sense of wanting to go out somewhere and have your mind blown by, you know, a wonderful new place. We all get older, we all get 
a little more comfortable with the things we know. Um, I'm lucky enough to have seen a little bit of the world and um, I feel less inclined to do it now than I used to. So for a film to be able to rekindle that is huge and I, I really I really love when a film can do that. The score here is is really helpful. The the pieces of, besides the goofy music that plays when there's a comedy scene happening, the the main theme uh, for Kong and for the island are really really uh, impressive, mysterious. Uh, uh, tap into that kind of old-fashioned adventure vibe. They even used the original Max Steiner score from the 1930s at, at appropriate occasions as well. For, I mean, the obvious one is when. Jack Black mentions uh, Faye Ray, who obviously played Andaro in the original, and somebody says, oh no, she's working on a film for Cooper for RKO, and he says, oh, Cooper, I might have known. And the, the Max Steiner score, bum, 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 that plays in the background, and you know, it's just, it's, it's fan service, but it is what it is. But the score adds to the sense of adventure. The build-up is amazing. Peter Jackson really takes his time. It's like an hour before they even get to Skull Island, and you know, that won't, not everybody will be happy with that, but if you're in the mood for it, it's it's there and it's great. The sense of inevitability, like I said, him getting all these pieces in place is really good. And there's this film has the most literal uh, version of the Joseph Campbell, uh, you know, hero myth crossing the threshold that I've ever seen. It, it happens twice. It happens firstly when Anne steps onto the ship and like the her, her footstep is in slow motion with dramatic music and, you know, she's taking her first step leaving the safe world and going into the extraordinary world. And then later on in the film, after Anne has been captured, when Denham and Driscoll lead the sailors across the bridge into the wild part of the island, there's a slow scene where they cross the bridge and it's really literal. It's such a literal <laughs> Campbell moment, but I love it. And it, it just speaks to that old child lizard brain of like wanting to go on an adventure the hyping up of Skull Island before they get there as this terrifying, spooky, dangerous place. It's blunt and it's on the nose, but I like it and it works for me. There's a lot of moments where somebody says something about Skull Island and everyone goes quiet. Oh, Skull Island. Ooh. And when they finally get there, the whole island, it's like it's this terrifying, scary place even before they land. Um, the the rocks that they see, the wall and the fog height shrouding it, the fact that the rocks look like some kind of plated dinosaur and the wall looks like a an animal that's died. Interestingly, uh, the book insists that the ruins on Skull Island must have been done by some previous civilization and that the current inhabitants of Skull Island just washed up, you know, so many hundred years ago and they, they couldn't possibly have built this, which unfortunately is a trope in adventure fiction whenever there's a lost civilization and there's like contemporary you know native people living there they, the character the europeans always say oh they couldn't possibly have built this it must have been some ancient race of you know romans or whatnot which unfortunately yeah has has some problems but it, it's it's a it's a subtext rather than a text in the film and, and that's the extra world building from the books and the games rather than from the film itself and throughout, you know what, the fairy tale kind of dialogue actually does work for me. So there's a lot, there's a lot to enjoy um, if you can accept the problems. And even if you don't, this is a very interesting and late example of a genre that is very much tied to time and place. And I, one whose days are numbered. And I don't know if this genre will continue to exist in exactly the way that we know it. And I don't know where it's going to go in the future. But that's everything that I have to say about 
Peter Jackson's King Kong for now. If you're interested in the Patreon, like I said, there'll be some bonus information about the natural history of Scott Island and King Kong Cometh, which is largely about the original film. So head on over and check those out. Uh, anything else you'd like to get in touch with us about, we are on Twitter, where we are at Strange Ireland, and Instagram, where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. So I'm Kean. Greetings and salutations from the Cabin in the Woods in West Cork. And as always, this has been Wide Atlantic Weird. So stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of